This is the business of sports. Should Major League Baseball shorten up the season? How do we present football to the audience of the future? I don't think that most players understand the power that they have. Michael Barr. The future of IndyCar racing is looking bright. Scott Soshnick. Very basic math here. More bidders means more money. Evan Novi williams The team value has essentially quadrupled. And the leaders in the sports industry. Time to bring in our guest, Hal Steinbrenner. National Hockey League Commissioner Gary Bettman. Atlanta Braves President Derek Schiller. Patriots President Jonathan Kraft. Bloomberg Business of Sports. From Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Eben Novi williams And I'm Michael Barr. Every week at this time, plus Mondays and Wednesdays, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. We miss you, Scott. Today, we speak with former Major League Baseball pitcher Michael Schwimmer about the business of sports betting, data, and analytics. But first, let's look at some of our top stories of the week, beginning with next year's Super Bowl in Miami and how much it will cost taxpayers there. Yeah, so we have a kind of a full accounting right now. It's looking like $20 million. Uh, four of those million go down to the go over to the Dolphins for, for hosting the thing. You know, there, there, there's various other costs, you know, police forces, firefighters, waste management. You know, they're, they're doing improvements across the county, soccer fields, football fields, things like that. Um, but as we put it all together, Miami taxpayers and, and Miami-Dade County taxpayers, $20 million to host the Super Bowl. I always wonder, because every time you hear somebody in a city bidding for the Super Bowl, you always hear, well, it's going to bring in business. It's going to bring in this. It's going to bring in that. And now you hear this is going to cost the taxpayers. Yeah, and and, and those, you know, the, the, the numbers on what it's going to bring in, the economic impact studies are super controversial uh, to the point that I, I don't even want to give whatever the number was that, that Miami estimated on the show right now. Typically, you know, you move the decimal place to the left one and, and that might be the number. So, you know, certainly Miami businesses, the, the the city, the county, everyone's expecting, you know, a big windfall here from the Super Bowl. And it, it may happen, right? There, there's going to be, you know, thousands and thousands of people that come to town for possibly even as long as a week or maybe even a little longer next February. Uh, but generally, you know, the the impact of hosting big events like that is generally very overstated. Well, it, it will obviously bring in revenue. You're going to have the restaurants all in the area and all the, the cabs and, and livery drivers, all that. Hotels that's gonna, will be booked for yeah, sure. Yeah, that, that's, that's all well and good. You're going to have the limos and all this. But I, I still don't understand how it can cost taxpayers money uh, for an event that uh, you want in your city. I, I, I don't understand that. Yeah, and again, the, the way th- these accounting works, I mean, the, the thing you need to take into account is that, you know, the, a lot of people are going to come to Miami for the Super Bowl for sure. There are probably also people that were planning to go to Miami for vacation in, in February that are choosing not to because the Super Bowl is in town, right? And and for people who live locally, you know, they may spend money to go to the NFL fan zone and, and other events, but you know, that might mean that they're spending less money doing other things. They may not go to the restaurant in March because they went out kind of to, to hit the town for Super Bowl in February, right? So so, so a lot of money just, just moves around. Um, but yeah, $20 million, and, and it's not often that, you know, the, the, the owner of the local NFL team get, gets a uh, gets a large check for, for, for hosting the thing, but, but Stephen Ross, the owner of the Dolphins, has kind of a unique partnership and a, and a unique uh, contract down in Miami. But yeah, $4 million of that goes to the Dolphins. Uh, all the other costs are, are you know, your standard you know, municipal costs for holding a, a week-long event in your city. Let's move on now to the Pocono Raceway. First mm-hmm. of all, the IndyCar race. Uh, congratulations to Will Power for winning, winning the race. But uh, it was uh, weather 
affected, so it was shortened by about 74 laps because you can't have lightning in the area, and that's what was happening. There's no other way for me to put it. This is my home track, but it's a dangerous track. And even Mario Andretti said this. Uh, He said Pocono is not for sissies. That's a direct quote. (laughs) You are clocking big time for IndyCars. This year we saw another big smash-up. Uh, and you have to remember, with an open cockpit, and you see a car ride up against the wall with the cockpit that way against the wall, you you, you have a collective hold your breath. It's like, oh, my goodness. Fortunately, everybody was okay in this one. But there have been other wrecks. Uh, last year's race. Uh, there Guy was, was almost paralyzed, he was, right? Yeah, exactly. And, then, and someone uh, died on the track four or five years ago. Yeah, so this happens. And, and the track is a very fast track. For people not familiar, uh, they call it the tricky triangle. And uh, you're clocking laps well at so 200 miles So it's a, a tri-oval, essentially. Right, exactly. Okay. Gotcha. And it's two and a half miles. So you're, you're flying, and you have probably the longest straightaway uh, on uh, the IndyCar circuit. I mean, the the whole front stretch is where all the grandstands are. Mm-hmm. And you're flying. So obviously, your foot to the floorboard when you're doing this. And then you got to woe it down when you go into one and everybody's darting and diving. Where That's where you see the start of a lot. And then everybody's heading into turn two, which really sets everything up because you're trying to get yourself set up. And that's what happened in this case, in this year's race. Uh, that uh, two cars touched, and and then you had five cars, and it was a big mess. So at what point, if you're IndyCar, do you say, we can't race here anymore? I mean, I I don't really follow IndyCar much. I know that you do. Uh, There was so much chatter. Even I I recognized it during this race on, on August 18th about, you know, criticizing IndyCar for choosing to go there. It certainly seems as though there's been chatter about Pocono maybe not being a safe racetrack for for IndyCar in the past, uh, at some point, do you step in if you're IndyCar and say, you know what, you know, we're looking at our schedule for 2020, and we're not going to go to IndyCar until we know that it's a place where you know people aren't going to be sent to the hospital every year. Well, I'm going to go and quote the great Mario Andretti. He said, "Removing an IndyCar race from Pocono would be a big mistake," mm-hmm. and I and I agree. Now, obviously, I don't want to see anything major league happen at the track to to any driver but the racing is exciting uh and 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 some and sometimes it's just been just awful luck and i'm going to talk about the lightning why they shortened the race at pocono because of lightning at a nascar event and i was there when this happened i think in 2012 uh the the race ends we're all trying to get out in the parking lot and there was this big bolt of lightning. I mean, it just scared the living bejesus out of everybody. <laughs> and, and unfortunately, during that, a, a person who was at his car, he had the trunk up, and he was killed. Oh. And and that's so. When you hear it's like, why are they shortening the races, and why are they doing this because of weather? This is why you can't have lightning in the area, not just in racing, but any sporting event. One other thing I did want to ask you: I saw video of them fixing the track after the initial crash, which I think was on the first lap. Right. They were putting up fencing and zip tying it to the retaining netting. Is right. that something that is that standard for for safety precautions? Well, zip tying a piece of of chain link fence well, seems yeah, like you, a, you, a, a very bad way to fix a, I, I, and I a rip in, in the it's, netting. It's one of those things where is you can't race without the the safety netting. 
and part of that wreck took out the safety netting. Yeah. So yeah, this was kind of like a makeshift Jerry Rig style of trying that, to put this together. <laughs> that's amazing. Oh man. Uh, and now let's move on. Uh, let's talk about Google. And in fact, I wasn't even sure that uh, I didn't know that they even had a ban on uh, fantasy sports ads. But now they're lifting that that ban. Yeah, this is an interesting one, and was sent sent to us by by a listener. So, so shout out to Jay. Um, yeah. So you know, previously DFS companies have not been able to through Google uh, advertise their their pay to play games, um, and that is that's a big deal, right? Google is a, is a huge company. There's a reason 116 billion dollars that's their revenue a vast majority of that comes from advertising uh, it's because they're good at it and they're effective and they have google search and youtube and a number of other platforms where those ads get seen uh, so this is a pretty big deal i think it's a big deal for a few different groups i mean obviously a big deal for dfs companies and that includes DraftKings. that includes fanduel that also includes you know the the, the number of other smaller companies that might not have the, the name recognition that they do and some of them are actually DFS only, right? They're not even doing sports right. betting at all. Um, so, you know, this opens up a whole new opportunity there, and it probably has an impact for for other sites as well, where those ads are going to show up, right? If you if you're a, you know operate or own a sports adjacent site of some sort where DraftKings and FanDuel would like to advertise but haven't been able to yet, uh, this probably opens up some new avenues for you. Now let's get to this week's interview with former Major League Baseball pitcher Michael Schwimmer. Michael had a two-year career with the Philadelphia Phillies, and after leaving baseball, he founded Big League Advance, a company that invests in minor league baseball players, offering upfront cash in exchange for a percentage of future major league earnings. His latest venture is Jambo's Picks, a subscription service that sells sports betting advice. Michael, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Michael, you and I spoke for the first time you know, last week. You know, We talked a lot about your two businesses, which are, are fascinating, and we're going to get into all that here. But for starters, kind of the common thread between the two of them is data. You know, They both use algorithms, analytics, predictive modeling. Uh, and it made me think about you know, the saying in business, data is the new oil. Uh, I'm curious, from where you sit, how well does the sports business world use data? Are they cutting edge? Are they way behind? Are they in the middle? What does it look like from your perspective? Well, it depends on the sport, and it depends, you know, how, how it's looked at. The data is the oil. I, I couldn't agree more with that comment. I mean, everything we do is data-driven. I think sports has a long way to go. If I had to give it a score between 1 and 10, I'd probably put it about a 3 right now. But that's in general in the entire sports world. Obviously, you know, for example, baseball and basketball are far more advanced than football and even European soccer right now. But that's just kind of an in general in terms of analytics teams and how analytics and data are being used. But even in basketball and in baseball, there are ways to use data that aren't, that aren't currently being used and stuff that, that we're doing over at Big League Advance and Jimbo's. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think three is kind of a good number, and I think that would surprise a lot of sports fans who, who maybe think of – Sports as kind of the, the the front, the leading edge of a lot of uh, of analytic and technology. Yeah, I mean, you know, sports fans. It, it's funny. It's hard to watch games now, especially even commentators. These are experts in the field, and some of the things they say, you just want to scratch your head. I I just watch games on mute now and listen to music as I go. It's just <laughs> too hard for me. <laughs> so 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 take me back. You were a major league baseball pitcher, and your interest in statistics dates back right into into your time as a pitcher, right? Yeah, well, actually, even before that, uh, high school, I took AP stats, placed out all the credits at UVA. I just always loved numbers, always loved math, um, and able to you know parlay that into pitching and being able to build models to try to get hitters out, and and really 
you know, believe in this chess match that's happening with each pitch from a pitcher and a hitter. And it's something I've always had a passion for, fell in love with, and worked out pretty well. So tell me a bit. I mean, you you built a model, a pitch sequencing model, while you were a major league baseball pitcher, right? What exactly did that look like? So in baseball, you got a you have a pitcher and a hitter, and hitters have tendencies and they have patterns, and you can recognize those patterns as a pitcher. You know, before in high school, for example, you know I had enough stuff to get by and get through. Then the college level. You know, freshman year, I had a 10.8 ERA, and it was really a big wake-up call. And I had a pitching coach and a manager that called the game, and they were walking me through their ideas on how to call games, looking at what hitters are doing. I then took that knowledge, which is very subjective knowledge from these experts, and then tried to model that out. And I modeled out hitters, you know, where they, where they put their feet in the box, where their first step is, where their body position is going. Their bat, their arm length. Arm length is actually pretty important to, mm. to know how much of the plate they can or cannot cover. You especially see a lot of short arm hitters stand right on top of the plate that you think the inside corner is available because, but they have those short arms are actually able to get the barrel to the inside corner. Chase Utley is a great example of that. Uh, Cody Bellinger, who has longer arms, but he, he can kind of step in the bucket more. And just looking at what they're sitting on, and they get into patterns of what they're sitting on. And the younger the hitter is, the easier the pattern is to figure out. Usually they're sitting on a first-pitch fastball or you know, something of that nature. You can kind of start off with like a bad breaking ball down the middle that you can kind of take for a strike. And then later in the counts, you know, they're, they're looking to put a ball in play, and that's where you can kind of get them with a fastball high. But as hitters advance, their approach advances, and that's where you know the modeling takes place of, okay, and my eye test is no longer good enough here to be able to determine what they're sitting on or what they're looking for, but these models are. And that's really what I believe got me to the major leagues and, get, and had the statistics you know, that I was able to put up. It certainly wasn't because of my stuff, that's for sure. <laughs> I had to figure out another way to be successful. And so this, was, this is an Excel spreadsheet that has, when you're in the major leagues, I mean, is there a, a tab for Albert Pujols that says where his foot is, where how long every his arms are. Player, every single player. That's well, fantastic. the arm length is not a. I don't. I didn't measure that. You can kind of just tell. We're just trying to look at plate coverage and and basically body momentum. Use body momentum to see what pitch they're looking for. So heading into each game, you know, you're looking at all the potential hitters that you can face, and you're essentially trying to memorize so that when you're on the mound, you have it in your head already. You make it sound a lot more uh, complicated than it really was. <laughs> it sounds I mean, complex it, to me. It, it was, and it was in the beginning. But I guess over time, after years and years of doing it, it got pretty. Just spend you know five to eight hours before every series going over all the hitters. I mean, there's only twelve possible hitters you could face. Yeah, being able to do that on on each of the hitters wasn't too difficult as time went on. Originally, of course, it took you know twenty plus hours. But then as you got to it, you see the same hitters over and over and over again. It, it got to be. Uh, got to be pretty shocking that hitters rarely change. I mean, I have a report on a hitter that faced me a year and a half later that got traded and traded back. It must always be the same thing. Um, even though I looked at it as a brand new person, it, the results would almost come out identical. And, and so for listeners who, who understand when we're talking about, you were on the Phillies in 2011 and 2012. Were there any other, did you have other teammates who were doing anything kind of similar to what you were doing, either hitters or, or pitchers? Not that I knew of. Pitchers spent a lot of time working on it. Some of them, like Roy Halladay, spent just as much time in the fill room studying hitters and, and looking for things. But, again, he was doing it very subjectively, but he, he was smart enough to where his subjective brain was, 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 was as close as it could be. And so hitters, uh, pitchers did spend a lot of time doing that, catchers, pitching coaches. But other pitchers didn't. 
you know, Cliff Lee had a lot of success, and he's a, you know, I don't think he shook off once in his career. He just threw whatever pitch was called, and he was an executioner. And if you can execute the pitch, that's another way to do it. Uh, you know, to answer your question directly, I, I think I was the only person actually building models at that time, or at least I didn't know of anybody else. Was it frustrating to watch Cliff Lee? I mean, you're spending hours and hours before every series going through all this, watching film, putting together your spreadsheet, and he goes out and just kind of throws and executes? It wasn't because it's a way that works. You know, there's a lot of ways to be successful. I believe there's two main areas to be really successful in sports, either to be in full control or to fully give up control and trust. And that's what Cliff Lee was. You know, I trust the catcher's done the work and can call the right game and knows, knows what's going on, so I'm going to execute it. And he fully believed in that. There's no doubting or second-guessing. Uh, for me, I, that's just not how my brain works. I, I have to be in control of everything that uh, that's going on, and the ball's coming out of my hands. The result is on me. I want to put as much information as I can to get the best you know, results. So there's definitely more than one way to be successful. I think the middle ground is where a lot of people fail. They're not smart enough necessarily to build these models or figure it out, but they also have the intuition like, ooh, maybe I shouldn't throw that fish, and then you end up second-guessing yourself. And that's where you can get into some trouble, at least from what I've seen. We're speaking with former Major League Baseball pitcher Michael Schwimmer. And, Michael, as we talk about this algorithm that you built, 2013, you hurt your shoulder. Uh, you start thinking about what's what's going to happen after baseball. And, and this data approach kind of becomes the genesis for your first business, Big League Advance. Is that right? That's correct. So um, when I was with the Phillies, I joined the Players Union. I was on the licensing committee and the executive subcommittee, and I was really, you know, hurt by how minor leaguers were treated, both financially and really just as people in general. They get five thousand dollars a year, and the team doesn't pay for anything, and you know, it's extremely tough. And you're spending that all season not trying to live your American dream and be the best baseball player you can. And I wanted to change that, and I wanted to fix that. And I brought together uh, like a presentation for the union, but ultimately, for those of you who don't know, the Major League Baseball Players Association covers major league players only. They do not cover the 7,000 minor leaguers. 7,000 minor leaguers, you have a less than 10% chance to play one single day in the major league and about 3% chance or less to make a lot of money. And my idea was I've built all these models. I know what it takes to be successful as a player. I've been in baseball since, since I can remember walking. And I thought that, look, I can identify these players, and I'd like to build a company to invest in these players, de-risk their career, and enjoy in their success with them. So the idea was you create a company that you'd give minor league players money up front as an investment, not a loan. And if they didn't make it to the major leagues, they keep all the money. And if not, then we have a deal where we would get a percentage of their uh, earnings. And the player can choose the percentage he wants to give up. So we base every offer of a 1% offer and go from there. And so – I started that company with Paul D. Podesta, actually, for those of you who don't know. Paul D. Podesta was the main character in the book, the Michael Lewis book, Moneyball, and the, the Jonah Hill character in the, in the movie Moneyball. And uh, together we were able to build upon the model that I had created. Tell us, I mean, when you went to, to Paul D. Podesta, who you know worked in a number of Major League Baseball front offices and is now with the, uh, the NFL's Cleveland Browns, you know, he he made it clear that he was he had kind of been waiting, right, for for someone to come along yeah. with this idea. It's something he had thought about before. Yeah, that meeting was a was a total chance meeting. It was so lucky. You know, every kind of successful story, I, I feel like there's a big luck component here, and this was certainly my big luck component. I met him at a healthcare conference because one of my friends had an extra ticket, and his wife was had hurt her shoulder, and I asked if I wanted to go, and so I said sure because Paul Podesta was the keynote speaker. I saw him, and he came up to me and immediately recognized me because at the time, you got to remember, when I was pitching for the Phillies, he was with the Mets. And so, you know, we played each other a bunch. 
And uh, you know, he asked me what I was up to now. I told him, and he was in, in total shock. I, was like, I had the same exact idea in 2004. He was going to do it. He actually had people that were potentially going to fund it. But then the Dodgers offered him a GM job, which was his first GM job, and he, he couldn't say no to that. So he's involved. He's the second largest shareholder besides myself. And uh, and we, we hit the ground running. So it was a really cool meeting. So give us a sense. I know you said that all these, each individual contract is different, but but kind of generally these are six-figure loans to minor league baseball players in exchange Not for loans we don't say the l word oh gotcha gotcha <laughs> these are investments investments because you don't they yeah, don't pay it players, back if they don't make it yeah we've had players take deals and then immediately retire the next day simply because they were depressed in baseball and you can't mild depression and it's their money they keep it you know that's what happens and does that frustrate you no not at all no. i lived it right? yeah. i lived the life i understand how depressing it is um, you know, we have 179 players now and look, one of them does that. And, and we have several players that are out of baseball right now, mm-hmm. right? That the model was, was wrong on and we're, they're out of baseball and several players are out of the, the notes. Like, thank you so much. You've changed my life. You know, it's, it's just, it's why I did this. This is a five players, four players company. The deal is the deal. And, and that's it. How many players have you, have you guys invested in? 179. 179. And, and. Give us a sense of, of of those 179. You know, certainly it's a young company, so they're working their way through the system. How many are in the major leagues right now? Well, I can tell you our first fund because that started in 2000, um, uh, end of 2015, and ended about 18 months later, so about 2018. And we had 77 players in our first fund. You got to understand, we don't get the top prospects either, right? The first round picks. And so all the 7,000 number that under 10%, that includes first round picks. So the guys that we're going after are really probably under 5% chance to make the major leagues. And we have 38 of the 77 hmm. currently, um, or have played in major league baseball. And we're expecting a number to, to be north of 50 uh, by the time all said and done. Over 75% of the players that we signed in those 77 were outside the top 300 prospects in baseball when we signed them. Mm-hmm. But it's the model. The model is able to data analytics. The stuff that we're doing is groundbreaking, and it's been able to you know, reap the rewards. So, uh, Can you give us some names? I know Fernando Tatis Jr. is, is one of them who's a, a Rookie of the Year candidate this year, by the way. So, so good call on that one. Well, he, he unfortunately hurt himself, so that's, that was the very depressing news. Um, all, all, our, all our players are, you know, our deals are confidential. The only way I can, um, you know, tell you is if they, you know, let us. And so I can tell you the players that, you know, Jared Ruxer, um, who is out of baseball. I mean, I can give you like a list of five or six guys that are out of baseball already because they have no problems sharing that. <laughs> um, the idea is these players don't want – teams to know that they're doing this necessarily it's their business it's their money and they don't want teams you know aware of their financial standing but Fernando Tatis you know I got to give the guy all the credit in the world we were running through a little tough patch you know early on people not really understanding what we were doing he wanted to go on the record and say how, how helpless was to minor leaguers and you know him and, and how they're taking we're taking the risk and it's just a great option for players to have so He's there. Um, Jose Osuna is with the major league on, in the major league for the Pirates, having a great season. Francisco Mejia, who's a young catcher on the on the Padres, is also one of our players. But those are the only three really that I can think of that are in the major leagues that wanted to go on the record. Gotcha. And and you brought up Francisco Mejia, who is one of the better, one of the top prospects in baseball, and and you, he sued 
big league advance a couple of years ago, uh, a lawsuit that was eventually dropped, but but did bring some some attention to what you're doing, and, and essentially, I mean, uh, call into question whether what you guys are doing are, was exploitative. Kind of, how did you respond to to that lawsuit? This was one of the, probably one of the biggest mistakes I've made as CEO was not explain to people what we were doing. I wanted to keep a very low profile. And so we were operating for a couple of years before anybody heard or knew what we were doing. And the first time anybody heard of it was this lawsuit from Francisco Mejia. So people instantly jumped to conclusions. Uh, you know, what are these companies doing? Da, 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 da. You know, it's really, you know, bad, like loan shark. They didn't understand that a player, they never have to pay us back. Players have lawyers reviewing their contract that, you know, we have videotapes of every single player before we sign them explaining the deal. If you understand if you're going to make $500 million, you're only going to, you're, you're going to only make $450 million if you do a deal with us for 10%, right? All of that is explained to them. I would never be able to sign a single player with a conscience if I did not know for sure that the player completely understood what he was doing. Unfortunately, Francisco, I believe, just got really bad advice. He knew from the lawsuit. He did file a lawsuit. He then um, not only did he drop the lawsuit, but wrote a very long public apology to us in the apology explaining that what he thinks that we're doing is great for minor leaguers, and um, he did pay a portion of our legal fees as well. So um, there was no settlement. There was no anything like that. It was simply, you know, he, he understood that he made a mistake in doing that and apologized for it. And uh, it, it also got in the light. There's articles written in Sports Illustrated and the athletic and other areas. And then once people understood, once people got that story and understood, like, man, this company's awesome. But initially, because that was the first thing they heard, it was a really tough time. And that's why I got to give uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. all the credit. Once he saw that the negative press come out, he wanted to set the record straight. And I, I got to commend the man for doing that. It's kind of a sensitive area, right? Because I, baseball fans are certainly familiar with the idea that oftentimes young, poor, uneducated, talented players do get taken advantage of by managers or by agents who aren't looking out for them holistically. Yeah, unfortunately, that is the case. Um, and that's also why we uh, we passed the bill in Delaware uh, it's on the governor's desk ready to sign it right now that made sure all these agreements, that these players had to have lawyers with them, that all the material terms had to be described to them in um, their native language and the contract had to be written in their native language. And again, that has to be recording to make sure they understand. You know, other companies that have entered the space don't necessarily do that, and they are being taken advantage of, and, I, and that's unacceptable to me. And so I'm really happy that the Delaware legislature took it upon themselves to be the first to, to pass a bill in this in that effect. So again, we can make sure players understand what they're doing in terms of signing these types of contracts. So let's move forward. Big League Advance is your first company and kind of out of some of the money that you raised for that and the management fees, you put together an, an, an analytics team to kind of go across sports and think, okay, wh where can we maybe do something else from a business perspective? And what you guys ended up on is uh, sports betting and more specifically a tout service, which, you know, finds sports betting picks that they think are particularly good um, and, and sells those picks to, to, to gamblers. How did you kind of end up with that as kind of the next iteration of, you know, this algorithm predictive modeling that you're doing? Well, with the success of the funds, we were able to generate a pretty good pile of cash there and, and wanted to bring together this great advanced analytic team. So I talked to Paul D. Podesta, Sam Hinkey also, and he's like, you know, who, who do we have out there? Who's good? So I assembled this, what I call, dream team of analysts around all sports. And, you know, 
NBA League office, and we were really able to focus on predicting games. We can predict the outcomes of games we could, we thought possibly work for teams. Right now, Team A, you have a 44% chance to win against Team B, but if you do these eight different things and run more pick and rolls or throw these pitches or run these plays as a football team, you actually go from a 44 to 52% chance to win. And like BD's like consultants was the idea. But we had to first prove that we can actually predict outcomes of game better than anybody else. And the best way to prove that is to beat the Vegas line and the market line, because that is what people think is the most efficient uh, line. So we did that. We started in college basketball, had unbelievable success. We picked it about almost 59% against the spread at minus 110 bets. And people don't realize this. Teams are extremely cheap uh, when it comes to these types of things. <laughs> and then, you know, we started thinking about, okay, can we actually like, use this money to bet in Vegas? So, um, and I thought, let's just raise this gigantic fund and just start betting on sports and become just billionaires. Do it yourself. It's going to be great. Yeah. Yeah, do it ourselves. Um, unfortunately, what I find is that the reason the market isn't very efficient is because money's not allowed to come into it. And we're getting shut down every, everywhere. After 16 days in Las Vegas, I was shut out of every casino every sports book down to the posted limits, which is $300 a bet. And so that's when I realized, like, yeah, that wasn't going to work. How do pro gamblers do it? The guys who are making a living, you know, making millions of dollars a year doing this, how, how do they kind of find the liquidity in the gambling market? Very easily. You can bet $300 a place, and you multiply that by 150 different places. They got a guy in Costa Rica that has 45 different accounts world net, net, uh, internationally, and it's a good way to make a living. You can make a couple million bucks doing that, but it's not scalable. At Chambos, we're paying $5 million a year for data and for people. So we can't, you know, if we're making 2 to $3 million a year, we're losing money, mm -hmm. right? And so that's when I had thought about selling the picks. You know, you can stop me. I can't bet $300,000 game, but 1,000 people can bet. So that's when we got into the subscription service space. It's, you know, it's hard for me to imagine a worse industry you know, maybe tobacco industry but <laughs> anyway, i was gonna say you you, you kind of but, picked like the the, rep, the the industry with literally possibly the word the tout industry for gambling is it probably has the worst reputation of any industry i can think of on the top of my head as well and as it should and i wanted to i wanted to disrupt this industry i wanted to turn it on its head and i wanted to you know anybody because i wanted to be the first ever fully transparent and financially accountable subscription service right why do people hate touts? Because it's you're giving the subscriber has negative expected value. If you lose for us, we want to lose. I said, look, if we're giving out picks that lose, I want to lose as a company. And so we created this system with this financial guarantee that has never existed in this space where every single package you buy, if our picks lose over that time frame, you're going to get your money back, plus we're going to give you additional money on top. And it's a lot of money on top. Our 17-week plan that spans the entire NFL football season. $3 a pick, which is typically the cheapest in the industry, but it is over 1,000 picks, which is, which is probably the highest in the industry. So it costs $3,000. If we can't beat the market, if you bet the same amount on every single game and we're down units, that means you've lost money, we're going to give you $10,000 back. If you look forward, kind of what worries, if, if you guys are, if you can consistently pick at 59%, that is a slam dunk home run. You know, that, that, that is a tremendous number and one that will make money for your clients. What concerns you? Is it that you know maybe fifty nine percent is is not what you're going to settle out at? Is it that the reputation of the industry harms you in some ways? What are the concerns that you look forward as you guys try so to? It's grow? not the model. I, I believe in the model. I've seen what it can do, and but I'm saying it can continue to beat the market, which at a minus one ten bet, all you have to do is be better than fifty two point three eight percent. 
you know, and I am, I'm not worried about that at all. And give me a sense. I mean, you mentioned that this is a, a more scalable model in your eyes than, than just, you know, sending, setting up offices in different jurisdictions and betting them yourself. I see a situation in which you get so big that as soon as you put out a pick, you know, people are betting it and the lines move and suddenly it becomes difficult for everybody who subscribes to you to get, you know, the odds at the, at the, at the price that you offered them. How do you kind of think about a future in which if you're really successful, it actually becomes harder for your clients to, to, to bet on the lines that you're offering? It's a great point. And it's, and that will drastically hurt our subscription service. I don't know how long it's going to take for the markets to adjust, but I don't know how long it's going to last. This is essentially a business where if you do really, really well, you're kind of out of business fairly quickly. I don't know about fairly quickly. Don't underestimate how long it takes for markets to react, <laughs> um, especially in the sports betting market. You know, we'd have to get a lot of subscribers who bet a lot of money for these uh, for the markets to move, as you're saying it was. And last question for you. I know your guys are also looking at potentially other opportunities using using this algorithm without giving away any trade secrets. What else are you looking at? What else do you think there is a hole in the market for a predictive model that does really well in Sport X or Sport Y? Yeah, there, there's three main areas we're looking at. We've been offered deals, if you will, in all three. And that's A, running a sports book, um, B, team ownership, teams, coming to us wanting to offer, give us actually a piece of ownership of these teams in order to come in and use our modeling to help teams win. Um, we saw Mark Cuban actually do that earlier this year. Maybe it was last year. And then lastly, the content space. We're at the top of the first inning in terms of sports betting content. And I think that there are a lot of different and unique ways to bring content to viewers that actually want to know why are teams winning and losing games and the actual analysis. I mean, look, we're getting into a 24-7 gambling entertainment network this will happen within the next two years michael schwimmer former major league baseball pitcher founder of big league advance and jambos picks thank you for joining us you're listening to bloomberg business of sports we're here each and every week at the same time plus online wherever you get your podcasts you can catch that mondays wednesdays and thursdays i'm eben novi williams scott and michael will be back next week and this is bloomberg business of sports on bloomberg radio around the world